Good morning. I promised to give you feedback, and uh, so before we start, I just want to briefly say there's a concept document circulating with uh, house church leaders and leaders in the congregation, which should be finalized when Alan and Milan are back, and I'm very excited about the contents and what I hope and pray God will be doing in the months ahead. So let me stick with that for now. Um, just be patient. Uh, they are away at the moment, so we, nothing much is happening. But God is still busy. So, uh, as I was preparing, you know, the more time you have to prepare, the more time you have to think, and the more God speaks, and so on. So I knew about this longer in advance. But this morning... The Lord was showing me a story that I'd heard a long time ago about a preacher who prepared and he wanted to preach on the dangers of alcohol. And he had a glass of water and a glass of brandy. And he had a worm. And he said to the congregation, see, if I put the worm in the water, it keeps on wriggling. It's okay. But if I take the worm and I put it in the brandy, watch it. And the worm dies. And one of the congregants put up his hand and he says, What type of brandy is it? I think I have worms. <laughs> so you can really prepare with all the good intentions of your heart. But it depends on the ears of the hearer. Do you want to hear <laughs> the message or are you defending your stance? So I just pray this morning, Lord, that you will touch our hearts and that your love will overflow and take all the guilt and shame away and show us your ways, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, for our country. We lift our country and our countrymen and women up to you. And Lord of heaven and earth, we trust you. Show us, rescue us. We desperately need you. Help us to turn from our wicked ways so that you may hear our prayers. Forgive our sin and heal our land. In Jesus' name. So, I want to share briefly about the lives of six characters throughout Scripture. And then at the end, to draw some common conclusions uh, about the lives of these men and some key differences. So, before I start, though, I was recently exposed to a, a, a business presentation, a high-level one that I got through somebody through somebody. I wasn't there. Uh, it's a Standard Bank economist, Kevin Lings, who spoke uh, on the last 20 years. He made a presentation of research about country. And uh, he showed that there is 1.2 million children entering schools every year, which means about a million or 1.2 million people need jobs every year. Uh, in this presentation, he showed that there are currently, it started... And the graph just climbed up like that over 20 years. $85 billion in corporate savings. 
which is money business is not investing in this country because they are too scared. On the other hand, there are a million people more than a million needing jobs every year. How is this going to work? On the one hand, there is capitalism. On the other hand, there is socialism. And neither of these are presenting a solution to us. The only solution... I mean, the, the other number that he gave that was startling was his... And I don't know what the ages were, but he said the youth of this country is 68% unemployed. That's a ticking time bomb. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that this is not going to end well unless God intervenes. And on the one hand, capitalism is holding on to the money. On the other hand, socialism is trying to grab it and there's this fight. And the kingdom of God is our solution. He must come to rule. And Zolani quoted the verse last Sunday, which doesn't leave me, John 7, 37 and 38. And have we got it there? Oh, this thing is temperamental, isn't it? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has it, streams of living water will flow from within him. So, the key for this thirsty crowd out there is what? We have to come and drink. Because the more we drink, the more the rivers will flow and then they can drink. Does that make sense? So, our first character that I want to look at is Paul. And it's a fairly lengthy scripture. I'm going to read the scripture because you can't really explain it better than Paul in his own words in Acts 26. It's from verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, now Paul is on his way back to Rome and uh, the Jews and the high priests are after his blood. They want to kill him. And he's now defending him in the presence of the king Agrippa. He said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all knew the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I don't think Paul didn't really know, but I think he had his suspicions. He just wanted to make sure. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. What a story. Paul, persecuted by the Jews. In this defense, he testifies about his belief in the resurrection. And he shares his previous life where he persecuted the followers of Jesus, his before Christ life. And then he shares his encounter with God and how God called him and said, Stand up, I'm sending you with this message. And then he testifies of the transformation, the new life, what he's now doing and what happened. And the message of salvation is powerful and clear. This is like a, just on the side, a lesson 101 in the preparation of your testimony. Can you summarize the story of your life in before I met Christ? How I met Christ? What happened in that encounter and now? Is there a change? Is there a change? Keep that in mind. Let's now go back and we start at Abraham. I'll make it short and sweet. In Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, we hear where the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, 
and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, a little while later in Genesis 15, after this the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Do you have, can you imagine what will happen even in our day, in our time? If the Spirit of God is poured out, what could happen in society? What could happen in this country? Are we going to believe God that it's possible or not? Genesis 17, God also said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you no longer call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abram fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at age ninety? And Abram said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. God wants to raise up a nation, his nation. There are many nations in the world, but he wanted an extraordinary nation with a kingdom culture. So he starts with one man, and he wants to start that nation. And this man has a barren wife. And he's called to be the father of a great nation. How ridiculous. How impossible. And both of them laughed at the idea. But his faith and obedience was tested later on. Because even the son that was born miraculously, he had to go and sacrifice. And we know the story where he found the ram caught in the thicket and he could substitute him. Let's move on to another one, Joseph. You know, Joseph had these fanciful dreams of the, 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 the ten or twelve that would come and bow before him. And his parents and his, especially his brothers were not enamored with his arrogance and what they saw. But his father loved him so he made him this fancy coat. His, his offensive dreams caused his brothers to want to kill him and eventually they sold him into slavery uh, as a better option. And there Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and he wouldn't budge for that. But she then grabbed his jacket and he ran out and she made a scene, told her husband and he was falsely accused and put in jail. In chapter 40 we 
of Genesis, we hear about the cupbearer and the baker's dreams in jail. And he, he expounded to them what these dreams meant. The one would be killed and the one would live. And so the cupbearer lived and he got back to his job. But he forgot about him for two years in jail. And then Pharaoh dreamt. And nobody could give meaning to Pharaoh's dreams. And eventually the cupbearer remembered there was a guy that could tell me my dream. And they sent for him. He told Pharaoh the dream about the seven years of uh, good rains and big crops and seven years of famine. And he became the ruler of Egypt under Pharaoh. His brothers came to buy grain back and forth, back and forth, and the story with his brothers, and eventually he revealed himself to them. Um, and his father moved to Egypt. So there were 70 of them at that point in time. That was the nation of Israel. And they were given the best place to come and um, herd their flocks. And then seven good years came, and then the famine... He has his sons, Jacob blesses them. And after Jacob's death, his brothers got scared again. Because they know now, Jacob is gone. Dad is out of the way. They sold him to slavery. He's going to get back at them. And this is what he says. Don't be afraid, Genesis 50, verse 19. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I provide, will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Let's go on to Moses. You know the story. Many years later, they've grown many. They get oppressed by the Egyptians. And Moses is born at the time when they want to kill all the babies because these Jews are getting too many. And he's put in a basket on the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter finds him and brings him up in the palace. And he, one day when he's grown up, he sees some injustice. He kills an Egyptian and now he has to flee for his life. So he flees to the desert. And there he spends 40 years. And then he encounters God at the burning bush. So now, this is what God says in Exodus 3, verse 10. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Exodus 4.10, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Mouths. Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you. Speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. 
Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. Moses and Aaron spoke to Pharaoh. The ten plagues followed. Then the Passover, the Exodus, and they spent another 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And Moses died just before they entered the promised land. The story of Moses. Are we as reluctant as Moses? Gideon. Again the Israelites were suffering at the hands of the Midianites and the Amalekites and other kites, whatever. For seven years, Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. He was hiding, I mean, you know the story, in a hole in the ground. Instead of on a threshing floor, he didn't want anybody from far away to see that he had some food there that he was busy harvesting and preparing to store. So, that's when the angel in Judges 6, verse 11, came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, that belonged to Joash the Abbey's right, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. Do you see a bit of a common thread here? Thirty-two thousand men were sent home, and Gideon defeated the enemies of Israel with three hundred men. First, twenty-two thousand left, and then were another ten thousand with him, and God said, no, we'll have to make another plan, and then most of those ten thousand had to go, and three hundred were left. God wanted it known that he could do it with a few. Nehemiah. He's in exile. He's a cupbearer to the king of Persia where he's about, hears about the state of Jerusalem. The walls are broken down and the gates have been burnt. And he's very upset. What does Nehemiah do? If you read chapter 1, there's a whole long piece where he prays. He goes into prayer for several days. He repents of the sin of his people on their behalf. And he reminds God of his promises that he gave to this nation. And he, he, gets, he asks for God's favor because God is birthing a plan in him. A desire to go and rebuild these walls. Here he is cupbearer to the king. He's the waiter. And he has this plan, this passion. And the next day when he's before the king, he looks depressed. And the king asks him, so why do you look like that? And he said, 
can I not be sad where the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins? And so the king says, well, so what do you want? And he got favor from the king. He got permission to go. He got provisions from the forestry department to provide the timber. And he even got soldiers and horses to protect him on this journey. In Jerusalem, what does he do? He goes and inspects the walls, goes and makes a survey quietly at night so no one can see. But as soon as it got worn out that he was here to rebuild the walls, there were especially two of them, Sanballat and Tobiah, that were giving him grief. They threatened to kill him. They set some traps for him and all sorts of things. They wanted to destroy the process. Continuous resistance. And then he challenges the people. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And what they did is they divided the work. People to build a piece of wall that's opposite their houses. Systematic approach to it. He organized and encouraged them and reminded them all the time that this was God doing the work. This was God's work they shouldn't fear. And they were work with a, a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. They had to arm themselves. And in this process they discovered the injustice of people that have become indebted to their brothers. And he sorts out this injustice. And then in Nehemiah 6 verse 15 we read, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Any of you been to Jerusalem? Have you seen those walls? They're crazy big walls, 52 days. I cannot imagine it. But that's what the Bible says, 52 days. In Isaiah 60, I didn't have it on the scriptures, but we read it's talking about the walls of Jerusalem to be restored, and it refers to them as walls of salvation and gates of praise. And I think these are the walls in our society that are down. We need to restore the walls of salvation and the gates of praise. So if we look at some parallels... They were all rather unlikely candidates, weren't they? Abram, he laughed. Joseph, he was the youngest. Moses, he could not speak. And he says, send someone else. Gideon says, my clan is the wicked and I am the least. Nehemiah, he was only the cupbearer to the king in exile. What can he do? But God opened a door for him. Paul, he was persecuting the church. What an unlikely candidate. They all had an encounter with God and knew Him to be for real and God revealed His plan for them. They all had an encounter with God. We read how Abram, how God spoke to him from Genesis 12 and then continuously. Joseph, God envisaged him with his dreams. He had this idea of what could be Moses at the burning bush and from that day on God spoke to him all the time 
Gideon at the wine press, mighty warrior, and what followed. Nehemiah, through his fasting and prayer, God gave him a vision of what he could do. And Paul on the way to Damascus. How critical is our encounter with God not? Do we just come with a grocery list to God? Bless, 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 amen. Give, 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 give. Or do we come and sit down and hear and get a revelation of, Lord, who are you? And what do you want me to do? Most of them felt that they weren't up to it. Abram was childless. His wife was barren. Joseph, he was daddy's spoiled boy. Moses couldn't speak. Gideon, he was the least. Nehemiah, all he could do was pray. And Paul, he says, and I am the biggest sinner of them all. I identify so strongly with that. They all had to trust God and obey what he did. What is that called in our modern language? Kingdom rule. The kingdom of God is where we obey him, where he rules. And it's one of the common threads. They all had to step into the responsibility and authority that God placed on them. He mandated them with a task. And he gave them authority and responsibility. They all had testimonies of God's faithfulness, his protection and his provision. When God commands, he comes along. They all suffered persecution and resistance. Abram had troubles with his nephew Lot and with the pagan kings around him. Joseph, his wife, the Pharaoh's wife and his brothers caused him havoc. Moses was born under the threat of death. Pharaoh wanted to kill him. He had to flee for his life. Gideon, everyone was looking for him after he demolished Baal's altar and he burnt and broke down the Asherah pole that they had put up. Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobias, they gave him grief all along. Paul, the Jews and the chief priests. When we step into obedience, we must anticipate resistance. It is, it is a given. <clears throat> God used their biggest challenges to work in their favor. Listen to this. Abram, his barren wife, the biggest challenge in his life, becomes the key to him becoming the father of the Jewish nation and the father of faith. Joseph, he was being sold into slavery. What a catastrophe. But the fact that he was there, he became the ruler of Egypt. And he was able to provide in the seven years of plenty to save the mini-Jewish mini nation that was being formed from total destruction and starvation. Moses, he grew up in a palace. He knew the Pharaoh and its, the how things worked there. And he spent 40 years in the wilderness fleeing from that to find out how the desert worked. And that equipped him to lead these people through the desert for 40 years. Gideon, 
God proved that he could deliver through the least and the few. The fact that he was the weakest and he was the nobody of nobodies according to himself. But God turned that around and said, I don't need many. Nehemiah, his position as the cupbearer, placed him in a strategic position to actually get provision and protection and permission from the king. His position in exile was the key to restore Jerusalem's gates and walls. Paul, the same zeal to persecute the believers also motivated him to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. What about you? Are you an unlikely candidate for Jesus to say, I, I, I need somebody, I want to use somebody in this time and day? I was. I was a typical nominal churchgoer in Freyet. We try and go every second week because that's enough brownie points. Because, you know, the other weeks we go to the dam to water ski with the children. Otherwise, otherwise you get there too late and the wind is blowing. I mean, you needed to sort of comply with the social norms of the society. You needed to be seen in church. And when I became a deacon, I got more work on my contracting business. Because I was sitting in front. It's, and people actually told that to my face. Oh, we're going to give you this job because I can see you in church now. And that was before I came to faith. I'm embarrassed about it now. So I wasn't the candidate. Not at all. I was riddled with guilt and shame. When we sang this song this morning, what does the words end? He stepped into my grave laughing at the guilt and shame. Now I can laugh at the guilt and shame, but then it crippled me. Before I knew about God's love, what you were talking about. Unconditional acceptance from somebody who rules the universe. That's the mandate we have. That's the Father we have. How real is your encounter with God? Do you know Him to be for real? And has God revealed His plan to you? In the New Testament we have a plan. He said, go into the world and make disciples. You see, in the first five people, except Paul, our Old Testament, our Old Testament stories, it was all about Israel. Abram, the birth of Israel, and all the others was about the protection, direction, restoration, leading of this nation. The New Testament is different. It's not about a nation. It's not about a nation. God is not calling us to lead a nation or to save a nation. He's calling us to make a disciple. In the Old Testament we see in every situation except Abram in the beginning, all the others, this nation was in grave danger. They were being threatened to be destroyed. And God raised up someone to do something. 
Paul is laying kingdom foundations, making disciples, modeling to us a testimony. Each of us should have the same equipment that Paul has. We have a life before Christ. We have a, an encounter with God and encounter him since. And we have a new life after that. It's a matter of going and actually figuring out what does that look like for you. That is the weapon God has given you to go out and be his witness. And I don't know if we've ever shared it here, but I heard the story about what does the word apostle mean? Does anybody know? It comes from a Roman term that was in the time of the Roman Empire. The empire would send an apostle to a new territory that they are conquering. And the job of this saint one, this missionary, this apostle, was to go and stamp out all other forms of the existing culture and establish the Roman way, the Roman culture. It's a secular strategy of come now, this is the way we're going to do it from here. And that is what Paul was doing. He was coming to establish kingdom culture, laying kingdom foundations in the present cultures where he was working. And when we think of us being the least, are we agreeing with the enemy that I could never become something, I could never do this, God could never use me? Who says that to you? Do you know? We all hear the devil's voice very clearly. Sometimes better than we hear God's voice. Do not, do not agree with the devil. Because that's what Eve did. And she caused the fall. We have to agree with what Jesus says. And bring life. In James 5.17 it is said, Elijah was a human being. Even as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and he did not rain in the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. The words that strike me was, Elijah was a human being even as we are. What makes the difference is Jesus plus whoever. It's not the whoever in the equation that makes the impact. Will you trust God and obey his command like they did? I was challenged with this when I was in Freyate. And I knew the God for a few years. And then... I said, I will give a year of my life, a year of my time. I'm closing my business to serve God in the church. And that became seven years. Are you prepared to step into the responsibility and authority that God is placing on you? Whatever that may look like for you. To me, that means... You have to go and make disciples. That is what I do. That's what I 
passionate about. Whoever comes within striking range of me. <laughs> who is available. I will have a go. What is your testimony of God's faithfulness and protection and provision? <clears throat> I haven't earned a salary since 1991. I haven't. God has provided all along in different ways. Esther in the book of Esther we read but is it not maybe for a time like this that you are here does the persecution and the resistance stop and scare you if there is one person that hates conflict it is me if you have ever heard about the Enneagram it's one of these assessments they do I'm a number nine and the number nine does everything and anything to avoid conflict. Peace, harmony. That's what I like. The challenge that I have is, if I stand up and say some of the things that I believe, there will be conflict. In the days of Paul, where did the resistance come from? The religious establishment. Where did Moses' challenges come from? Not so much the enemies, from his own people. God will use your biggest challenges to work in your favor. And I was wondering now, how does this apply to me? And I thought, what was my biggest negative thing, apart from the fact that I was this huge sinner? And I think it's my temper. You want to know something about my temper? You ask my wife, she knows me for BC days. You know, what is the thing I do most today? Is I help people deal with anger. I understand it from the other side. The common thread <clears throat> in all of those is that it's the kingdom of God. All of those men obeyed God. His rule happened in their lives. And I, uh, is it too early to wrap up? I believe that God has revealed to me what he wants to intervene, that he wants to intervene in this time in our country. Do you believe that? What he has showed to me is that, he showed me that there is not 30 years. He, 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 I suppose he could find a virgin, but he doesn't have 30 years to take that process from conception right through to uh, adulthood for him to become flesh on this earth again to come and do what has to be done. So what are his alternatives? I believe, believe he's looking for volunteers that would be willing to let him have their bodies today. To do a swap out. 
If Jesus came to you this morning and said, I need urgently a body, I can't wait 30 years, can I have yours? What would be your response? What would be your response? It might mean that you would lose your life. Would you be prepared to volunteer? That is the challenge this morning. I seriously want to challenge you with that. Would you be prepared, would you be prepared to stand up and say, Lord, here am I. I'm available. Is there anybody that's prepared to stand? I'm going to continue saying a few things, and as you stand, remain standing. Jesus said that whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. He also said that if anyone would come after him, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses it for him will find it. In Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is not radical. This is Christianity 101. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. And then you will be able to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Who loved me. Who loved me. And gave his life himself for me. In Acts 1.8 it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Then this thirsty world will know where to come to drink. We need to drink first. We need to encounter him, and embrace him, and hear him, and be empowered by him. And then the streams of living water will flow into the society around us. Your minds may agree. Your emotions may be touched. But unless our will is activated, nothing happens. And that's why I've asked you to stand. We have to act activate the will actively. Because I want to pray for you. Father, 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 thank you for every man and woman in this church. Thank you for everyone standing now, Lord Jesus. I come to bring them to you, Father, for your protection, for your equipping, that you will impart to them a vision of what you want to do through them, and that you will do it, Lord, that you will use them to make disciples, to change our nation, 
Lord, that you will give them faith and courage, that you will fill them by your Spirit, that you will equip them with the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit, Lord. Lord, teach us your kingdom ways. I pray, Father, that you will send a hedge of fire around each and every one standing now, Lord. That you will send your angels around them. And that your holy presence will be in the midst of that circle. That they would know that they've encountered the living God. And Lord, that you would change this nation through each and every one of them. Collectively, Lord. We worship and praise you, Father. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace and your unconditional love. Lord, we don't know the future, but we know you, and you hold the future. We come to submit to you. We come to humble ourselves before you. We come to pray, Father, forgive us, forgive our, the people of this country, forgive our government, forgive the past. Forgive the hatred, forgive. Forgive their corruption, forgive the racism, forgive, Lord, the sins of your people. We come to seek your face, Father. Without you, we're nothing. We need you. We want to walk in the light of your revelation, Lord. We want to look up into your, your countenance and see the love and the acceptance. We want to find our identity in the family of God in you, Jesus. Help us to turn from our wicked ways. And that your name may be glorified. And your banner, banner may be raised in this nation. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us all and take us on this journey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.